This afternoon we will be looking at God's Word as confessed in Lord's Day 27, and in light of that, we will be looking in particular at Hebrews chapter 8. So Lord's Day 27 has to do with the sacrament of baptism, and we'll see over the course of the sermon how that connects to Hebrews chapter 8, which you can find on page 1378 of your pew Bible. Hebrews chapter 8. Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Now this is a reference back to chapter 8 where they are speaking of needing a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. The one who does not need to daily offer up sacrifices but who offers it up once and for all. So we have such a high priest. A minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected, and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he, being God, he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have, sought, would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. In that, he says, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And so accompanying this reading from Scripture, we'll be reading God's Word as confessed in Lord's Day 27. This summary of Scripture found in the Heidelberg Catechism on uh, page 541 of your Book of Praise. So in uh, Lord's Day 26, it spoke about what it means to be baptized, to be washed with Christ's blood and spirit, and the assurance that we have that we will be washed by Christ's blood and spirit. And in Lord's Day 27, we read, does this outward washing with water itself wash away sins? No. Only the blood of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit cleanse us from all sins. Why then does the Holy Spirit call baptism the washing of regeneration and the washing away of sins? 
God speaks in this way for a good reason. He wants to teach us that the blood and spirit of Christ remove our sins just as water takes away dirt from the body. But even more important, he wants to assure us by this divine pledge and sign that we are as truly cleansed from our sins spiritually as we are bodily washed with water. Should infants too be baptized? Yes, infants as well as adults belong to God's covenant and congregation. Through Christ's blood, the redemption from sin and the Holy Spirit who works faith are promised to them no less than to adults. Therefore, by baptism, as a sign of the covenant, they must be incorporated into the Christian church and distinguished from the children of unbelievers. This was done in the old covenant by circumcision, in the place of which baptism was instituted in the new covenant. So far. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, as we make our way through the scriptures day by day, and as we've been working our way through the Heidelberg Catechism from one week to the next, we can see that we have a God who works with us through a relationship. Through the centuries, when we look back, we can see the ebb and flow of the faithfulness of the people. But we see a God who is rock solid in his promises. Now, in order to get a full grasp, a comprehensive grasp of this faithfulness, we lean on the revelation that God gives us, namely his word. As, his, as this is such a large topic, this relationship of God through his word, and we have a limited amount of time, we can only briefly touch down on the major passages of scripture which tie this together. But if you want to do a more in-depth study, I would encourage you to take a look at Reverend Stam's book, which I've leaned on for this sermon, The Covenant of Love. And so I bring you the word of God today as summarized under the following theme and points. Our God shows his mercy through the covenants. And we'll see, first of all, a covenant that is old. Secondly, a covenant that is new. And third, a covenant that is for today. Now, before we begin, I'd like to take a moment to explain the idea of covenant. Because not all of you might understand it, especially you younger people in the congregation, you might be thinking, what is a covenant? We talk about it a lot, especially as being members of the Reformed Church. We look at God's relationship with his people through history, and we talk about the covenant a lot, but what is it exactly? Now, the fact that it's not familiar with you right now would make sense, because we don't use the language of covenant a whole lot today. But for the Israelites, who would have been reading the Old Testament, who would have been reading this at the time that Moses himself wrote it out, they would have understood very well what was meant by a covenant. Covenants originated in the Middle East. They were most often used between greater kings, called suzerains, and lesser kings, called vassals. These legal covenants included an idea of continuity, carrying on. They emphasized the greater king, the suzerain's claim on the children of his vassals. And this claim was confirmed by an oath with a special ceremony, often the cutting in half of an ox or a cow, 
and the sharing of a meal. Now, the idea of cutting this ox or calf or whatever other animal it was in half was that this will happen to me if I break this covenant. Scholars studying ancient tablets found by archaeologists see that these covenants were meant to serve many purposes. But there are two that I would like to focus on in particular. One theological dictionary writes about this. They say, the suzerain stated that as victor and lord over the vassals, he had spared them in battle, delivered them from extenuating circumstances, and placed them in situations of life and well-being. This was an undeserved favor. It was an undeserved favor because as the conquering king, having overcome them, he had claim to their lives. They were his enemies. They had risen up against him. And so they felt that it was his right to do with their lives as he saw fit. And so letting them be spared, letting them grow in his new kingdom that has now expanded to encompass their territory was an undeserved favor. Second, the suzerain's covenant was also intended to serve as an administrative function. So it was intended to serve in a way that would give him oversight. It informed the vassals how the king would govern them and what they were to do in obedient response to him. Now, we can see this already coming out in the Old Testament. We can suddenly see the links starting to fall into place. This is a big deal because it shows us two things. First, that God is a relational God. He works with his people in a way that makes sense to them. Because of this, they could never say that what he said was not clear and that they did not really understand what he meant. Second, although he works in a way that makes sense to them, God still brings his own perspective on it. So he uses the language of covenants, which is familiar to them, but he reshapes it in a way that applies to his relationship with his people in that particular way. And the dictionary carries on, saying these two purposes, the reminder of deliverance and the information on administration of affairs of daily life, appear in Yahweh God's covenanting with his people, but they appear in radically different ways. The main difference that God brings to the concept of covenant is one which he has made clear since the very beginning, since the fall. That is the fact that since man, that since man fell, he can't uphold his side of the covenant. Therefore, there are not two owners, so to speak, of the covenant, like you would find in a covenant between a greater king and a lesser king, then both of them would be equally uh, owners of this covenant, this legal obligation. But no, there, is, there are no two owners of the covenant, but there is only one, God. That is why again and again through Scripture, in passages like Psalm 89, verse 34, Jeremiah 33, verse 20, and so many others, God calls it my covenant. He is the sole origin of this covenant. And that should be a huge comfort to us. Because it means that he not only supplies the requirements of the covenant, but we can also be sure that if we turn to him, he'll give us the way to fulfill this covenant. So to get a better picture of 
what is all wrapped up in the idea of covenant, let's work our way through the pages of Scripture. There's a lot of information to cover, so I hope it's not too overwhelming. We'll take it slow. The first chapter that I would like to discuss takes us right back to the very beginning. This chapter establishes the need for God to begin a relationship of mercy with his people. Prior to this, God was simply their king. He ruled as supreme over their lives, but mankind rebelled. Genesis chapter 3. Man wanted to be ruler over his own life and to be equal with his creator. Now, the first revelation of God's mercy can be found in Genesis 3, verse 15. Here we read the words, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. God is speaking to the serpent at this point in time. And he's saying there's going to be a struggle. There's going to be enmity, anger, animosity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And then it refers to a specific member of that seed. He will crush your head. So in this, it contains a revelation of the essence of what's behind the covenant. First of all, it's God that establishes this relationship. The fall brought man into league with Satan, but God broke this bond between man and Satan. He chooses the side of man against Satan, putting enmity between the two of them. This relationship also extends to their seed. It's not just a claim that God lays on Adam and Eve themselves. No, it's a claim that he lays through their seed. And the struggle will be decisive. There will be a Messiah, there's the promise of a Messiah, and there's a promise of a serpent, or crush, crushing of that serpent. Next, we can go ahead to Genesis 8, verse uh, 8 and 9. There, we read about the flood and the covenant with Noah that comes after the flood. Now, this covenant is a very general covenant that God makes with his people. The forces of nature are bridled. And because this was the case, this is often called the covenant with nature. The thing that makes this covenant unique is that it assures man only earthly blessings. However, it rests on the covenant of grace in that this covenant, too, came out of the grace of God. Mankind received unmerited favor. This is all God's mercy. He receives blessings that have been forfeited by his sin. Because of this, the covenant that God makes with Noah here is an attachment to the covenant of grace because it's an extension of God's grace through to his people. Next, we move ahead to Genesis 17. This will be a familiar passage, especially for many of you uh, kids who have attended an element, a Christian elementary school or who are homeschooled, and you probably covered this in class. This is, the, uh, this is the covenant that God made with Abraham. For the rest of you, your parents probably also taught you this. They read Bible stories that reminded you of this. Now, finally, there's a transaction that's being made. It's not just simply God. So circumcision is what God adds to the covenant. And it becomes a sign of man's righteousness by faith. 
Before this, we didn't see any markings on the bodies of people. Although there were religious families, we see earlier in Genesis references to the sons of God and the daughters of men. But that now changes. Here it becomes clear that man is a member of that covenant and he must respond to God's covenant by faith. Spiritual blessings become far more clear. We can see that in Romans 3, uh, Romans 3 to 4 and in Galatians 3. These spiritual blessings depend on faith. This faith is credited as righteousness, we read in Romans. Abraham received justification with God. He was made right with God. And the gifts of the Spirit to be sanctified day by day. And that was all by faith, we read in Romans 3. It also included a symbolic element. So these physical blessings that Abraham received, God promised him the land, God promised him many other things. They serve to symbolize heavenly things. There is another land that is coming. Abraham is also not technically the head of the covenant, of this particular covenant, as only Christ is the head. Still, he is described as the father of all who believe in this covenant. And finally, we see that it's this covenant, not the covenant as Sinai, which the New Testament authors look back to most frequently as the revelation of God's grace to his people. Next, we move on to the covenant at Sinai. This is when all the Israelites were carried out of Egypt, and they came to the mountain, and there was fire on the top of the mountain, and God's voice booming out, and the people saying to, to Moses, please, Go up there. You talk with God because we can't handle the sound of God's voice. It's too great for us and we might die. Now, this covenant that God gave at that point on Mount Sinai, it, in essence, it's the same as that with Abraham. But the way it's worked out is a little bit different. And we can see that in the laws that are brought, out, brought forward. The Lord reminded the people of his covenant with Abraham. We can see that in Deuteronomy 1 verse 8. And we can see that Moses himself also realizes that this covenant that is given on Mount Sinai is based on that covenant with Abraham. Because Moses himself bases his plea for the people of the Lord on that covenant. Exodus 32 verse 13. The Lord assures them that when they repent and return, he would remember his covenant with Abraham. And we can see that already back, if you remember back a number of weeks ago, we were talking about Nehemiah. He was praying, he was asking that the Lord would remember the promise that he gave to Moses, this promise that he would remember his covenant. And that was a reference already back to the covenant of Abraham. Still, there was a difference here. At Sinai, this became a truly national covenant, a covenant with a people. It included a service as the reminder for the strict demands of the covenant. But it still showed that this covenant was under grace. The conditional element of the covenant was not so much a focus on whether or not God would uh, would. This was not a reference of salvation primarily, but mostly a reference to God's kingship over Israel and the enjoyment of outward blessings. And so we see all the ceremonial services connected with that. These are a message 
from God, of salvation that he gives. So the law itself that was given at this point in time served as a rule of life for the people. Now throughout the Old Testament, in these various covenants, we've gone through them, it's been a bit of a blur, but in these various covenants, the covenant at creation, the covenant with Noah, the covenant with Abraham, the covenant at Sinai, we can see that God is showing three things to his people in particular. First, we see that it is God who reaches out first. That's the foundational element of this. It's always God. God who reaches out first. He is the one who establishes the covenant and he's the one who upholds it. Second, we can see that God isn't just interested in outward obedience. That simple outward obedience is not enough. But God is interested in the hearts of his people. He wants their hearts. Third, we also see that time and time and time again, the people of God are covenant breakers. Faced with God's goodness, his grace, and his blessings, they turn away. They can't uphold their end of the covenant by their works. And so, by these covenants, God is showing to his people how much they truly need their God. How much they need his mercy, how much they need his grace, and how much they need redemption. And this brings us into the new covenant. Now, in the New Testament, we see how God puts flesh to his promises of redemption. He has reminded his people up to this point in time, all right, you need to look to me. You need to keep relying on me, looking to me in faith. And now he puts flesh on that. His people have longed for a Messiah. They have been brought to the realization that what they themselves can do will never be enough, that they will keep on turning away. And so God introduces a new covenant, the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace is, in its essence, the same as that which governed Old Testament believers of God. We can see that in Romans 4, Galatians 3, where Paul is talking about Abraham and how Abraham was declared righteous before God by faith. So that central piece of it, that you have to look to God in faith, that's the same. But the New Testament, the New Covenant, differs in that now it extends to all nations. It's not just for the people of Israel, but it extends to all of us. Every single one of us, because I don't believe we have very many people of Jewish heritage among us. The greater emphasis is now placed on the gracious character of the promise. There's more focus again on what God said to Abraham instead of the laws and the rules of Sinai. And the New Testament covenant also brings richer blessings than that of the Old Testament. Here the word became flesh. The Holy Spirit is poured out and the fullness of the grace of God to all believers is shown. So it's nice to look at this in theory and to see these two set up side by side, but how do we know that this is carried over from the Old Testament? How do you know 
How do we know that this is something that started there and continues on to this revelation with Jesus Christ, the revelation that we receive through Jesus Christ? For that, we need to look at Hebrews 8, the passage that we had read earlier today, or earlier this afternoon, I should say. For those who have a different view of Scripture, who tend to break it up more into sections, into eras of history, and say, oh, the Old Testament, well, you know, that no longer applies as much today. This passage presents them with a bit of difficulty, because this chapter in Hebrews points out that there is a connection, that there is a continuity between the Old and the New Testaments, and it does it with a clarity that makes it difficult to deny. So what makes this the case? Why is this, re- why is this the truth? Hebrews 8 has in it a significant quote, a quote from a famous prophecy in Jeremiah 31, a prophecy about the new covenant. This was something that they were already speaking about in the time of Israel, this new covenant. There are some who have difficulty with referring to God's relationship with his people in the idea of covenants. Or if they do understand it, they may tend to think that it's mostly an Old Testament kind of thing. But Hebrews 8 proclaims loud and clear that the new covenant is what God is proclaiming here. It's reaffirming earlier covenant promises and it's showing how these blessings are expanded in Jesus Christ, how they find fullness there. And it's something that directly ties into the New Testament. Jeremiah 31 highlights that the promise in its strictest sense is unconditional. This promise guarantees inward grace. In fact, the promise works grace in the heart of man. This is made especially clear through the sacrament. The sacrament doesn't seal something that's conditional, but it seals a promise which has been fulfilled unconditionally. As Jeremiah himself writes, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Now we know that not everyone who takes part in the sacrament, who has received the mark of the new covenant, who has been baptized, believes. And we'll get to that later. But in short, we can see that there is a living relationship with God that's enjoyed by believers only. And we can see that in general, there's also a legal relationship. So there's, about, there's uh, different levels here. And that relationship, that living relationship is governed by faith. So we look to Jeremiah 31, verse 32 in particular. There we read about a reference to a new covenant. That's the connection that's brought in to Hebrews 8. And we ask ourselves, how do we understand the fullness of this? Which covenant is made new by this covenant? The new covenant is new as it compares to Sinai. Jeremiah points out that this new covenant is not like that covenant. Before Sinai, the covenant was one which was shared by word of mouth from one generation to the next. But when the Israelites reached Sinai, God had Moses write down these commands of the covenant. And what was the result of that? Did they become more faithful? No, they became less so. 
In fact, the Apostle Paul highlights this in Romans and points out that the very purpose of the law, the written code, was not for the Israelites to become more faithful, but to show them the depths of their inability. He writes in Romans 5 verse 20, the law was brought in so that trespass might increase. But he doesn't stop there. And neither does God. Instead, we can see that God has a much broader plan at work. And this is where the need for a new covenant comes. Romans 5 verse 20 continues. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness, through eternal life, through Jesus Christ our Lord. The new covenant ties us to Jesus Christ. Its demands are fulfilled through him. That everyone who believes in him can take part in these new blessings that the new covenant grants. Now going back to that Jeremiah 31 connection as quoted in Hebrews 8. We read that the new covenant has the law written on the hearts of God's people. We read that it is better because the old, in the old covenant God found fault with his people. Now, no, there was nothing wrong with the covenant itself, but now God had a covenant that was focused on renewing his people. The Lord is taking a great step forward by fulfilling the ceremonies of the law at Sinai. By bringing in a new stage in his dealings with his people, one that focuses on cleansing and renewing through the blood and spirit of Christ. And as we more and more preach nothing about Christ and him crucified, it will become fully evident that this covenant, this new covenant, is a matter of the heart. The old covenant was connected with Moses. The new covenant with Jesus Christ. The old covenant is obsolete, while the new covenant rests on the ministry of Christ. Everything that we have now, we owe to Jesus Christ. Every aspect of this covenant is dependent on him. And so we need to look to him in faith. Look to him, depending on him, through faith. And in that way, it becomes something internal. A lot more internally focused. So with that broad perspective, where does that leave us for today? There's a simple answer that can be found in Colossians 2. We read, for in Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. In him you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So we see that connection from the old to the new. The circumcision, that sign of that old covenant being brought into the new, through Christ. So we were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, putting off the body of the sins of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith and the working of God who raised him from the dead. For you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses having wiped out the handwriting of the requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. 
Circumcision of Christ is a clear covenant connection here. No Jew would look at this passage and mistake it for anything else than a reference to the sign and seal that accompanied God's covenant promises. And so the promise, so the circumcision of Christ is a spiritual one that we receive. And by this spiritual circumcision, by this putting off of sin, by this, he accomplished, he accomplished it in himself. He accomplished it by suffering and death. In that way, he took on the requirements of the law that we can never fulfill. Just as circumcision was a sign of the cutting away of the sins of the flesh, so Christ's death was a sign of the cutting away of our sins. And we see in this passage that it's intimately connected with baptism. We have died to sin. We have been buried with Christ through baptism, in which we are also raised through him by faith in the working of God. This is a beautiful promise. And this is a stunning reality. Because it means that all who are baptized are baptized into this new covenant, including children. Just as they, by circumcision, received the promises in the Old Testament, they now have also received the sign and seal of the new covenant promises, which are obtained by Christ. So now, we share in it, in faith. We are called to look to God, to look to Christ. This is a word of joy for us because we can trust that we are in a relationship with God. He does look out for us and provide for us. And he not only provides for us, but also for our children. So let us rejoice in this, brothers and sisters. Let us train up our young people in the reality of this situation, this truth. Build each other up in, the real, in this reality and train your children to love the Lord and to look to the one who has shown his faithfulness through all generations. To look to the one who not only supplies the demands of the covenant, the one who not only supplies what we need to follow, but the one who supplies the fulfillment of the covenant if we look to him in faith. That's the grace that's shown to us. Let us encourage our children to look to him. And let us look to him ourselves. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care who share in his covenant because of Jesus Christ, his son. Amen.